Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest today is Jason Michelli. He's a United Methodist pastor. He's the host of the Crackers and Grape Juice podcast and the author most recently of Cancer is Funny. He's also a good friend. It was great to reflect on these texts with him. I give you Jason Michelli. Jason, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, it's a thrill to have you on the man whose love language is hyperbole. <laughs> Spare no exaggeration is my motto. No, absolutely. That's you. You know who you have that in common with? Who? One Donald J. Trump, who in. I, I, the, I think I'm the best exaggerator. The he, best. he says that, that one of the key things to, to, you know, the art of the, in the art of the deal, I think he says this, that the art of the deal is all about truthful hyperbole. <laughs> Or not truthful, untruthful hyperbole. Well, speaking of the Donald, it's ironic that someone whose his net worth is premised almost entirely upon the use of his name. He doesn't appear to have, have read or heard what Solomon says today in Proverbs about a name. Look at you. Look at you. Bringing it all around. Look at that. Instantly. I should have a podcast. I'm good at the segue. Somebody stuff. took his Adderall today. <laughs> he is focused on the podcast. So, yeah, we have Proverbs 22, which says verses 1 through 2, 8 through 9, and 22 through 23 is the, is the selection for this Sunday, and it says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Sometimes I think the lectionary just cuts out verses to make the lection, like the lector on Sunday morning, just just, just mess with them. That's possible. I wouldn't wouldn't rule that out. But a good name is to be prized over riches. You know what's funny about that? You see this sometimes at like cheesy gift bookstores where like card shops and things like that that have these little cards or whatever that tell you what your name means Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then they'll have this as if it's like wow i'm glad i'm named jason and not malthus or something (laughs) (laughs) like jason greek for virile well it's you're very aptly share a coke with solomon so you know you have this passage which is saying that a good name is to be favored above riches right and and name here is is less about like hey i'm glad i have a my parents looked through the books of names and didn't choose something terrible but more in the sense of integrity your reputation that sort of thing this is kind of earthy wisdom as proverbs often seems right it, it sometimes it sounds like it could read like benjamin franklin read these yeah will willman likes to call the book of proverbs a, a long car ride with your mother-in-law that that's how it reads um and i think that's that's true it, it, it's i don't know i like if you force it through a christian frame though you know is our name so much what we choose for ourselves or is it what's given to us at baptism yeah, and I like how you say force it through a Christian thing as if it's <laughs> such a, as if Christ isn't the center of the whole thing. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, I, the, 
a good ultimately the name that we are under right is the name of father son and spirit right? mm-hmm. through the vicarious work of jesus so in in some sense that's the 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 name that we it's funny because i've heard tim keller say that we parent through fear and shame right like mm-hmm. like, like basically don't do this or people will say you're terrible or don't you know or you'll be found out and you, you'll be ruined and your mm-hmm. reputation would be terrible so as as opposed to saying that that you know part of no matter what happens to your name, you can always begin again at the beginning because God is a God of, of new beginnings. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. So there's a sense in which that probably needs to be sort of to complement or round out, as you're saying, the Christological preaching and reading of this passage, right? Yeah, I think I think you should allow the gospel to forbid a moralistic reading of this text, which which seems to be kind of the primary frame of reference to it. Um, that, you know, what, what, what we should value is what has been bestowed upon us through the sacrament um, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I also think it's interesting here, too, so, you know, like that you can read it in a moralistic tone um, that then makes, you know, a good name uh, uh, aspirational. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting here. Um, in verse nine, that those who are generous are blessed, and so it's 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 not a you know if you are generous you will be blessed, but it's a, a present tense uh, statement. Yeah, your own Will Willimon, who <laughs> you just quoted, says this in his in some commentary he wrote on this passage: "Those who are generous are blessed, for they share their bread with." the poor. This is more than a lead-in to the annual church fall stewardship campaign. This is a countercultural assertion that generosity toward the poor is a source of blessedness. In a society in which all that I have is called mine, open-handed generosity becomes a way of resisting the powers that be. Most of poor Richard's proverbs, devised by Ben Franklin, stress prudent management of wealth, cautious care of riches, the way of economic progress. These biblical proverbs assert another way of life, where riches tend to be perilous and the Lord takes sides with the poor, despoiling the lives of those uncaring, ungenerous rich who despoil them. That's good. Great, great words from a Methodist. Now, on to, let's move on to the book of James. Brother James. Again, it's like 1 through 10, 11 through 13. Yeah. There's a lot of jumping around here, James. <laughs> Chapter 2. And yeah, we jump around all over the place on this text from, yeah, you're right. We go from verse 1 through 10 to 11 through 13, which is in brackets, which makes it an optional reading. So you read it if it makes it less convicting, you read it if not. <laughs> Then you skip, and then you go through. through you always 14. know that's where the good stuff is. Through 17. Right. And it's interesting because you have this injunction, right, to about favoritism. My brothers and sisters, do with your acts, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? And it's talking about if, you know, two people come in, one wearing fine clothes and looks great, and the other looks like they're poor and destitute. And you say to the one who's wearing is decked out, have a seat, please. While the other one is poor, you say, stand there, or sit at my feet, or, you know, wherever you can find something. Uh, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And then he says, you know, listen, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? And then he talks a little more about, about you know, just this dichotomy between rich and poor and the way God works. 
And then it, the passage kind of, then there's this transition to loving the neighbor, you know, as yourself. And if you commit adultery, but you know, if you murder, you're a transgressor and that sort of thing. And then it concludes with this injunction, which Luther loved about faith and works. <laughs> Martin Luther called James the epistle of straw. But yeah, uh, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. I, I think it's so unfortunate that this becomes, um, that the concluding verse here becomes uh, a, a cliche that ignores everything that went before it. And that there, we, we create or we allow this false <laughs> distinction uh, to exist between James and Paul. Um, you know, that it's really easy to take this passage and make it uh, moralistic to get back on that again um, in terms of how we should show no partiality between rich and poor in the life of the congregation. Um, and that we should have works because faith without works is dead. Um, but really, if, if you read the whole thing here, like James's point is is Paul's that like there is no distinction uh, between any of us because none of us are able to keep the law in its entirety. Um, so, so, I mean, really, like James is is just echoing Paul in Romans. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with that I think there's less distance from between Paul and James than people often like often attempt to make there be. And you know, it's it's interesting to note too that the poor in in the Old Testament and in the New Testament can mean, you know, the poor in spirit, mm -hmm. the, the brokenhearted, and it seems to be that James is almost at least there's a double entendre here because he doesn't say, "Okay, you should give the the poor person the prominent seat and Mm -hmm. And make the rich person, you know, like let's have a great reversal here. The, mm -hmm. There's this sense in which one, the, the, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male mm -hmm. nor female. There's, That's good. The, yeah. The, there's this sort of there's this injunction against bifurcated anthropologies, mm -hmm. right? That there are mm -hmm. two sorts of people. That in Christ, that that mm -hmm. those distinctions, which seem to be ultimate in the world's eyes, are completely relativized, mm -hmm. and that we realize that you know it's only those who realize that they're poor whether literally materially or or materially and spiritually or just spiritually whether you know they're maybe they're they have wealth and great abundance but have someone like Zacchaeus right that, that can see his own spiritual poverty in the in the gospel story where Jesus eats with him mm -hmm. so th there is i think yeah there there's this tendency also i think to read it tribally Right, <laughs> you know, I'm reading Jonah Goldberg's book right now, "Suicide of the West," and he talks about how what's interesting about the Enlightenment is how rare it is, and how most of world history we're just so tribal. Mm -hmm. And 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 the Enlightenment. It's a good thing actually, we're not like that anymore. Right, exactly. And then we're always—it's so fragile because we're always called to tribalism, and where the gospel and the Enlightenment sort of maybe are not the same voice, but complementary voices in some ways. Is in a pre-modern way, the gospel is always calling us away from the tribalism mm -hmm. into gathered in gratitude around the one who's the Lord of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Yeah. And I think that's where it's important too, to, to, you know, the, the, when James says that, you know, faith by itself isn't sufficient, he's not thinking of faith in the way that Paul often uses, you know, faith as just a synonym for Christ. Um, you know, that Christ alone is sufficient, but that's not what James is saying. Uh, you know, he's making a distinction between works and faith as, as our act of believing, I think. Yeah, that faith has, it, it, it's interesting. I've heard Tim Keller say, this is my like second Keller quote today, I think. But I, I've heard Tim Keller say that we're not saved by the fruit of faith. Mm -hmm. But there is the sense in which the New Testament assumes that it's not fruitless faith that saves either, that the mm -hmm. Spirit does do something 
but it's the spirit's work, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the spirit brings the fruit. It's a, it's the fruit of the spirit. It's not mechanistic. It's an organic metaphor, mm-hmm. right? And you can't, I mean, there are things you can do to make fruit or vegetables. There are things you can do to, to inhibit their growth in your garden or to help it, right? You can put up certain strictures and you can, but you can't make it grow. Yeah. Right. That, that, that ultimately this, th- that, that you're really subject to the elements and photosynthesis, sunlight, rain, these things like that. So even the things we do in our own lives still don't make the fruit. The, mm-hmm. the nature of it is organic. So to bring that home, it would be that um, to what? To trust and to celebrate our oneness in Christ will yield good fruit. Amen to that. Speaking of Christ, speaking of oneness, speaking of oneness, let's go to the gospel reading, which is one of my favorite texts in the New Testament. And in, in the, the Syrophoenician woman and the deaf man. So, Scott, I have an, a question for you. What would you say to those who would say that this Syrophoenician woman, um, um, what awoke in Jesus uh, an enlightenment he did not have before his encounter with her? So here, you're saying here in Mark seven twenty four through 37, we have Jesus. That he too was a victim and a captive to the categories of his time. Unwittingly phoned a friend. <laughs> she was his lifeline. Yeah, that's one way to read the text. That, that, and it will undoubtedly be preached by many people <laughs> on that, this coming Sunday in that manner, that Jesus is another person captive to his socioeconomic, racial, gender norms, and there'll be sort of an intersectionality reading or something like that. Yeah. I am disinclined to read it that way. <laughs> why? I think I think you saying why is an important thing. Yeah. Well, I, I could answer it. Can I just, I can, can I give you the answer mm-hmm. completely uncreatively? Uh, I often quote, on this podcast and many, many other podcasts, the great Frank Lake, for those who are watching. You love Frank Lake. It is massive, this tome. It's about a th- this paid. This copy was given to me by Josh Redder in Ohio, sent it to me. It's actually autographed by Frank Lake. But he has the best treatment of this text I've ever read in ever. Uh, and I've studied this text for years because I've always been curious about it. And he says this. On his cross, he would himself be thrown to the dogs and in the power of the dog treated as the outcast, outlawed from his own people, identified with the Gentiles in the scorn of the Jews. It was this man supremely identified with outsiders who spoke to the pagan woman, affirming to her what she knew so well for herself that she was an outsider. Jesus did not attempt to mitigate the dreadful rigor of the categorization of his world into the Jews who were inside God's immediate providence and the Gentiles who were for the present outside its purview. Christ was a Jew and salvation was of the Jews. The children must first be fed. The children's food was not for dogs. The silence of Christ frustrated her urgent petitions and made her seek not his favors, but his face. It would be his face that held together the cleavages of her existence. His paradoxical gaze held her both in sternness and in gentleness. Knowing herself in his countenance, she did not need to deny the ineluctable fact of her own exclusion from the favored family. She could hold to the truth of her outsiderish feelings, unmitigated by sentiments calculated to soften the blow, while denying to her the painful truth. But nevertheless, the truth of her own wretched status, she 
was a dog. And there is no greater indignity in the East than that. She also had produced a demonic daughter. Election had placed the Jew in an unmerited, unmerited position of national right. An appalling temptation to presumption went with it. But still, he was the covenant child of God. The Messiah, who was the bread of life coming from the Father, had a prior responsibility and more than that, a strict limitation to the children of Israel. But Christ was not ignorant of the later extension of the purposes of God to draw all men to him, including those far-off pagans, of whom the woman was the first representative apart from the Gerasian demoniac. Hysterical in her need and cling, afflicted and ready to shrink away like a beaten cur into a cringing schizoid detachment. Why was she not repelled by the master's words? It is not right to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs, surely because she was living in the light of his countenance. And to do this is faith and creates faith. Out over the abyss of separation between Jew and Greek, breaking down with his encouragement the middle wall and partition between them, she quips as faith so often does, for its crazy contrasts make for humor. Truth, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. I may be subhuman, a kind of dog, a thing without family rights, but you are my Lord and master. And you are so rich a giver that even scraps from a table like yours are bounty enough for me. All this speaks strongly of the way the truth of Christ comes to the sons of want, burdened as they are with schizoid deficiencies at the heart of their humanity. Sit neat, says Jesus. She had already done so. Her eyes of faith had been feasting on his countenance, and she was healed of the horror of rejection. Christ had created faith in her, and then he commended it, for its greatness is the magnitude of the abyss over which she leapt to follow his eyes. First, they had looked with compassion and identification into the deep pit of her unmerited degradation. She had not winced. Dog, he said, and dog she was. Not a human-feeling child at all. Then he had drawn her across in an infinite distance by an invitation in his eyes to a rest in his heart, the place where all souls are fed. She did not hang back. No lingering introspective glances made her draw back unresponsive to his steady look. She did not say in tiresome apology, let my shame go where it doth deserve, guilt of dust and sin, or I cannot look on thee or I will serve. She obeyed the indication in his eloquent eyes. Without hesitation, she did sit neat. A woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt, said Jesus. Her daughter was healed at that moment. She returned home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. Being and well-being, life in its sustenance, healing for herself and healing for her distant daughter. In her utter nothingness and leaving behind her self-rejection, she accepted all that Christ had to give in one splendid gesture of response to him. All that passed verbally to mark this infinite leap of faith was a quip of a few words. That's really good. That's the best treatment of that text I've ever read. And I've read and tons does, of them. Yeah. And it does a really good job of pairing her sight and his, and his and, uh, the eyes with the ears that follow. Yeah. Yeah. And then following, there's a deaf man. It's almost like Mark intended it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Almost. Is there. And it would. Yeah. I mean, the it's convenient amazing. chronology of Jesus's life. Yeah, Mark actually was, you know, a literary and theologically reflective person. Shocker. Well, thanks, yeah, Scott. I, yeah. I, I like that treatment of it. So I think it's more, you know, it's more on target than most biblical studies things yeah. I've read. No, I think that's good. I need to check out Frank Blake. Or Josh Redder, you just need to send me a copy too. And also that beautiful thing in the intro that is great for preaching that it so much of the Gospels, like people say, oh, substitutionary atonement is not biblical. It's all through the Gospels. Mm -hmm. He would become like a dog, like Lake mm -hmm. says. He would become you know, shamed and scorned like her. So he would trade places with her. You yeah. know, that he would he would ultimately be become a dog so that she could become a child and eat at the table. Yeah, I I, th I think 
people complain that they don't see the Gospels in Paul because they don't see Paul in the Gospels. Yeah, amen to that. And I think, you know, Paul Zoll has said that Paul's theology of grace is just him sort of teaching what Jesus did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and oftentimes these narratives, if you look, these are these are the stories of grace enacted mm-hmm. and dramatically demonstrated. And so oftentimes I think if we have some literary imagination, we, we see the unity between Jesus and Paul as opposed to... If we're kind of less attuned to those things, we, 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 we hear them as like a cacophony or a dissonance when really they're harmonious. You said cacophony. Well, speaking of grace, cacophony. I need to go to my staff meeting or my staff will show me no grace. Well, I hope you all show one another grace <laughs> and welcome each other like the dogs needing grace that you are. <laughs> Thanks, my friend, for doing this. See you, Scott. I know. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks again to my guest, Jason Michelle. You can follow Jason's exploits at tamecynic.org, and check out his podcast, Crackers and Grape Juice. Thank you again for listening and we will catch you next week until then fare thee well